Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How is everybody? Yeah. Uh, welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matt Kressel. I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow. We run the Fantastic Fiction series every third Wednesday of the month. It's always free. There's never a cover charge. All we ask is that you uh, buy a drink, hard or soft, to support the bar, because the bar supports the series. There's never a cover. Uh, so if you can, please buy a drink and uh, tip your bartenders who are working hard to keep you hydrated, especially on this balmy June afternoon. Um, I'm excited to introduce our readers tonight. We have Mary Robinette Cole and Lawrence C. Connolly going to read for us tonight. Um, I've heard both of them read before. They are amazing. Uh, you're going to really enjoy them, their uh, performances. And um, before we get to our readers, I just want to uh, quickly announce the upcoming readers for the, the next few months. Uh, July 18th, we have Brooke Bolander and Angus McIntyre. You guys can clap. Yeah. I saw Angus before. Is Angus, where is Angus? Angus is in the back. Um, that'll, that'll be really cool. Um, I mean, everything's cool. Uh, I mean, hey, we book them, right? Um, August 15th, Jeffrey Ford and Michael Weehan. I, I'm, I'm actually... I'm really like I, I love both of them and I was like oh cool I want I want them to read and then and then I'm gonna be away so that sucks but uh, I know I, but uh, well I'll be in I'll be in uh, the Grand Canyon so it won't be that bad um, but yeah I can listen oh yeah so um, if you if you don't know we have a we have a podcast so we record every uh, Gordon Linsner here which we should also uh, we should applaud because Gordon Gordon Linsner records. Uh, the audio for us provides the audio for us, which we stitch together and we do a podcast. So if, if you're not here, you can't make it, or you live across the country, you live across the world, you can listen to the, the archives. I think, I think at this point it goes back about four years. Um, yeah, some great stuff in there. Um, so check it out. It's, oh, so the URL is kgbfantasticfiction.org. You just Google that. It's the first thing that comes up. It's also on iTunes and I think a few other like podcast sites. Um, September 19th, Kids Johnson and Patrick McGraw. October 17th, Lawrence Schoen and Tim Pratt. November 21st, Leanna Renee Heber, who's here. And uh, Kat Rambo. December 19th, Nicole Corner-Stace and Maria Devana Headley. Uh, Headley, I'm sorry. And January 16th, Victor Laval, Julie C. Day. And... Um, April 17th of 2019 is Nathan Ballengrund and Arkady Martin. And May 15th, Simon Stranzis. So yeah, we got a, we got a pretty, pretty great lineup for you guys. Hope you'll join us. I uh, hope you'll come. Uh, if you can't make it, please listen. And uh, you know, just we really appreciate you guys supporting the, the series, which is, by the way, has been going since the late 90s. And uh, it's still going strong, so we hope you'll continue through through the, uh, the next few years and beyond. Our, our first reader is going to be Lawrence C. Connolly. Um, Lawrence, I'm told, has some books for sale. Is that correct? His voices? Voices. He'll show you when he comes up here, but he has uh, copies of voices for sale. So at the break, you can uh, come up to, to Lawrence, uh, buy a copy, get it signed. He'll sign a few. Actually, it's... Uh, it's got a pretty amazing uh, inscription in the, in the, in the uh, opening of the book, so I hope you'll check that out. Lawrence C. Connolly is one of the writers for the anthology film Nightmare Cinema, premiering next month at the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal. Produced by Mick Garris, the movie goes into wide release later this year. 
Connolly's books include the Stoker finalist Voices, scheduled for re-release this summer, This Way to Egress, and Veins. Uh, find more about him at lawrencecconnolly.com. Here he is. Thanks, Matt, for that introduction. <clears throat> and um, thank you, Ellen and Matt, for having me back here, and all of you for being here. Thank you so much. The last time I was here, I had a story that was set in an underground subterranean bookstore that stocked books and magazines and anthologies from an alternate reality. And I thought it might be fun tonight if we did a, a series of stories and packaged them as if they were from an anthology show from an alternate reality, you know, sort of an alternate reality, outer limits. And we'll start with a control voice story, and we'll go to a couple of standalone flashes, and then we'll end with an excerpt, the first uh, portion of a story that is the bonus story in the reissue of Voices. And I hope you're up for joining me in an adventure tonight, because I would like to do these stories off book, from memory. First one is a control voice story. It's titled Aberrations, Aberrations. You are not hearing these words. This voice is a manifestation concocted by you in an attempt to deal with something for which you have no understanding. Something uncanny is approaching, and you are in serious danger. Turn around. Do you see? Perhaps you see only the trappings of your everyday existence, things that you expect to see. Nothing strange, nothing dangerous, nothing but this veil of denial. You cannot accept what has happened, and what has happened is something so far beyond understanding that it has plunged you into a fugue. But you cannot remain here. You cannot turn inward. Doing so will make you easy prey, and the hunters are coming. They are almost here. Try to remember how it began, how you turned to glimpse something that could not be a visitor from another sphere who vanished the moment she realized you had seen her, and now she and her people are concerned. They know that the vision has plunged you into delusion. But they fear you will recover, and when you do, you will recall everything. You will recall the gold of her face, the light of her arms, the iridescent pattern of her wings, and the barbed talons of her feet and hands. Even now, as your mind converts these words into images, the memory rises, and this is what they fear. They cannot let it continue. Your only hope is to flee. They will not take you if you attract the attention of a crowd, but if you remain as you are, quietly listening to a voice that does not exist, they will finish with you before the world knows you are gone. Do you need more proof? Look up. Make yourself see. But you remain blind. Your denial is strong. You might as well keep listening. Perhaps if you are lucky, the fantasy conveyed by these words will protect you from the true horror, the pain of alliteration. You might as well keep listening and pray my next fantasy holds your interest. <laughs> Do I have your attention now? <laughs> keep with me, stay with me. It's a kid's story. Yeah, it's about kids. Chaz was different. He believed things. When Billy Jacobs told him there were ghosts in the attic, Chaz nodded as if Billy's lie had been the gospel truth. And then Chaz went about his business, which involved things like staring at swirls and plaster walls or the wood grain patterns and strips of plywood. And when I asked him what he was doing, he said he was thinking about the ghosts. Ah, oh, Chaz, I said. Billy was only kidding. But Chaz just shook his head. No, there's ghosts up there. Go check. You'll see. 
and damned if I didn't believe him. You see, Chaz had a knack for turning lies into truth. I'll never forget the time when Judy Hendershot told him about cracks and lines. By then, most kids knew better than to fill Chaz's head with lies, but Judy was new on the street. She figured he needed to be messed with. She walked up beside him as he stood on the sidewalk. Hey, boy, she said, be careful. Now Chaz turned real slow, and he gave her this squinty-eyed expression like he was looking through a keyhole. He didn't say anything, so Judy pointed to his shoes. Look, she said, and when Chaz looked, he saw that his left heel was just an inch away from a crack in the concrete. We all saw it coming, but before anyone could stop her, Judy said, step on a crack, break your mommy's back. Step on a line, break your daddy's spine. <laughs> and then in a burst of poetic inventiveness that for a moment made us forget the terrible implications of planting lies in Chaz's mind, she added, jump over a crack, break your daddy's saccharilliac. Not that we knew what a sacroiliac was. We thought it was a butthole, which conjured some comical images in our prepubescent minds. But Chaz, he just stared at Judy, his squinting eyes looking right through her. And then he turned, and he looked along the sidewalk, his squinting eyes picking out all those cracks and lines. Oh, we could tell he believed Judy's lie. And when Chaz believed something, the world adjusted accordingly. You see, his mind was kind of a transformer. A thought would get in there, and his mind would transform the world. Now, sometimes things scared Chaz, like those ghosts in the attic. Chaz never went near the attic on account of those ghosts, and it was a good thing, too, because once he started believing in them, the ghosts were really there. But other times, Chaz liked what he heard. And I guess he liked Judy's crack and line poem because before anybody could stop me, took off down the sidewalk, stepping on cracks and lines like they were bugs and worms. Sometimes he'd land on a line with both heels. He'd jump forward over a crack and all along the street, people collapsed in pain. We chased him, but of course that only made him run faster. It was me that caught him. I dove, I grabbed his legs, and he fell forward. And to this day, I don't know why he didn't put out his hands to break his fall. He, his head hit the sidewalk and the concussion went right through his body and into his legs and into my arms. And after that, everything changed. All those people with broken backs and sacroiliacs, they rose up like they had been cured by Jesus. <laughs> Everyone was fine. Everyone, that is, but Chaz. Now, I don't know how Chaz was able to turn lies into truth but I want to learn. I spend a lot of time looking at plaster swirls and wood grains, and I try believing that Chaz isn't gone. I try believing that he's standing right beside me. I try believing that everything's the same as it was before Judy Hendershot told him that crazy crack and line poem. And sometimes, when I squint my eyes just right, I can almost see him staring back at me from the wood grain patterns of the attic door. Thank you. Thank you. Careful what you tell kids. This story originally appeared in fantasy and science fiction. It's called Prime Time. Underwood looked around at the rows of telephone solicitors. Some faced computer screens and spoken to headsets. A few ate at their desks. Some ambled sluggishly toward a door marked employee rest area. The offices of Singleton Marketing looked like a decent enough place to work, but Underwood, who had wanted to start his professional career as something other than a telemarketer, still had questions for Mr. Singleton. Did you say your people place calls to all 50 states? Mr. Singleton gave a balding nod. He was a bird-like man with a diminutive chin and a beaked nose and wide eyes that filled the concave lenses of his glasses. Also, Puerto Rico, Mexico, and Canada. And they placed their calls on a time delay? Well, more than that, Mr. Underwood. Our people place calls on a system that enables them to reach prospective customers at 6 in the evening. Dinner hour. Prime time. At Singleton Marketing, it's always prime time. So I come in at 8 
No, you come in at 9. You can come earlier if you like, but we only require our employees to be here from 9 to 5. So I come in at 9. I have a call with someone who answers at 6 in the evening. Exactly. Dinner hour. Best time to reach two-income families. I have a conversation with someone who won't hear my voice for 9 hours. Exactly. I hear them. They hear me. Yes. Well, we do require our employees to sign an agreement that prohibits them from using the system for personal gain. But if you're interested, you can start tomorrow. He gestured toward an empty desk. We try to retain good people, but when someone feels he has a better future elsewhere, we let him go. Fortunately, most choose to stay. To the right of the empty desk sat a man with silver hair and tired eyes. To the left, a woman with blonde hair and a face that looked as if it had been hung out to dry. Your neighbors will be Mr. Royal and Ms. Corona. But Mr. Singleton, shouldn't they be going home? It's five o'clock. Well, sometimes our employees put in extra time. No reason not to. He gestured toward the rest area door. And besides, whenever a Singleton marketer places a call, it's prime time. Singleton left Underwood to work for one week. And in that time, Underwood realized that telephone solicitation was hopelessly boring work. And after a week of sitting between the tired-eyed Mr. Royal and the sagging-faced Ms. Corona, he hatched a scheme to use the system for personal gain. The plan was simple. He came into work at 9, placed a call to his apartment. He hoped to get his future self instead and get the closing stock reports. And Instead, he got Singleton. What are you doing in my apartment? All taking care of business, Mr. Underwood. <laughs> Where am I? Why, Mr. Underwood, you are at your desk placing a call. No, I mean, where am I there? If you're in my apartment, where am I? Oh, Mr. Underwood, I'm afraid you're not here. As a matter of fact, I'm afraid you're dead. Underwood realized that Mr. Royal was looking at him from the next desk. Oh, not dead on your end, of course, but here in the closing world of, in the world of closing stock reports, you have become the late Mr. Underwood. Underwood felt dizzy. He leaned forward. He braced against his desk. By using the system for personal gain, you risked injuring or destroying the computers, not to mention the space-time continuum. But if it's any consolation, there is still a place for you at Singleton Marketing. Now, Miss Corona was looking at him, too. By using the system for personal gain, you forced us to take corrective action. You were killed shortly after leaving the office. You didn't, well, that is to say you won't feel a thing. The death was, will be, painless and swift. But if you never leave the office, <laughs> Mr. Singleton, please. Oh, cheer up, Mr. Underwood. Think of all the people who work for companies in which they have no future. <laughs> you, on the other hand, have no future except with the company. <laughs> Welcome to the family, Mr. Underwood. The line went dead. They monitor our calls, Mr. Royal said. Underwood's computer scrolled to a new account. Auto-dialing kicked on. The earpiece hummed. They had nine hours to get to your apartment before the call went through, Ms. Corona said. Cheer up, Mr. Royal said. Working here isn't as bad as you might think. And then with a dry chuckle, he delivered the punch. <laughs> it's worse. <laughs> the line stopped ringing. A voice answered. Hello? Dinner dishes clattered. It was prime time. Thank you. This one originally appeared in uh, an anthology titled Fear the Abyss from Postmortem Press, and I rewrote it so that it could, it could appear as a bonus story in the, um, the reissue of uh, Voices. And um, it's set in the West Virginia woods, and um, I guess that's about all you need to know. It was originally titled Human Caverns. It's now um, titled Siren. Kevin paused beside a frozen creek to check his GPS. He was in deep, far from the road, 
surrounded by old-growth pines. It was getting late, but there was something about the stillness of the frozen valley, the soft shadows of the trees, the shimmer of light on glazed rocks that made him want to stay a little longer. He took some pictures and kept exploring. The creek valley was steep, contoured by centuries of flowing water. He climbed out, rested beside a leaning spruce, its roots exposed along the brink. He took a long piss against its trunk and then headed south to a deeper valley where he came upon the remnants of a West Virginia farmhouse, scorched posts standing upright amid drifts of snow and ash. It had been recently burned, the smell of char still fresh in the air. He took some more pictures and then headed along a floodplain, coming out into view of a deformed hillside, right angles, stunted trees, tangled weeds. He knew the signs. Years ago, the slope had been strip-mined. He climbed out along the bench cuts and came at last to another valley. And there, 300 yards away, lay the remnants of a mining town, dark, silent, abandoned. Above it, the sky was turning dark blue, almost purple. Behind him, it was nearly black. Time to return to the car. He took a wide-angled shot of the town, marked its location on the digital map, and then turned and began retracing his steps, making good time, until his sense of solitude was broken by five men approaching through the trees on his left. There were more to his right, and one of them carried a shotgun. They spread out, surrounded him. He reached for his phone. Hold on. Shotgun man stepped closer. Hold it right there. He wore a patchwork of Appalachian hides, fur turned inward for warmth. His hat was a hollowed-out raccoon with its head facing front, jaws molded into a dead snarl, but the man did not sound local. Are you with the government? Who, me? No, I'm a blogger. I write about ghost towns, abandoned buildings, things like that. Why? Oh, it's interesting. People pay you? No, it's just a hobby. You got a name? Yeah. Kevin. Where are you from? Kevin. Pittsburgh. How'd you get here? Car. Who drove? No one. Car drove itself? No, listen. I drove. It's just me. The car's back there on a country road. I'm heading back now. What's in your pack? What, my backpack? Well, nothing, just some food, water. What about that? He pointed to Kevin's hand. It's my phone. I use it to, all right, Kevin, I know what phones do. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take everything you're wearing and carrying and put them into that pack of yours. Understand? Why? I want you to mash it in real tight, everything that'll fit, everything that doesn't. I want you to fold up, put on the ground. I don't understand. It's not complicated, Kevin. All right. I'm calling 911. And tell them what? Come and get you? Even if you can't get a signal, how long do you think it'll take them to get here? This isn't the city, Kevin. The long barrels of the man's gun became 12-gauge holes as they took aim at Kevin's face. Now, Kevin, in the pack. Phone, clothes, everything. I'll freeze. Not if you hurry. Kevin felt something break inside of him. It was a realization that resisting would just piss the guy off. Besides, these guys were in control. He had no choice but to play along. Hope. For something. He removed his gloves and felt the chill against his hands. He put the gloves into the pack and began unzipping his coat. The other men just watched. They weren't armed, not with guns anyway. Some carried shovels. One carried a pickaxe. Shotgun man turned to pickaxe man. All right, do it. Pickaxe man stepped toward Kevin. He was young, wispy beard, rash of acne, barely college age. He raised his pick and brought it down hard on the frozen ground. Dirt flew and the impact echoed from the trees. What's he doing? Digging. Why? Well, waiting, Kevin. And you're all wasting time. Kevin removed his coat. He tried putting it into the pack. It wouldn't fit. 
He folded it up and put it on the ground. By now, Pickaxe Man had dug a two-foot trench and was stepping back as the shovel men approached to clear the dirt. They worked as Kevin removed the rest of his thing as he shoved what he could into the pack and then tried zipping it closed. Seams popped, but the zipper held. Only his coat and boots remained outside. And the shovel men kept working, piling the dirt into a loose berm beside the trench, and the trench now resembled a miniature grave, too small for a man, unless that man were hacked apart with a pickaxe. It'll do. Shotgun man turned to one of the diggers. Trevor, finish it. Trevor stepped toward Kevin. He looked him in the eye. Hey, man, this isn't personal. Trevor's accent had little in common with shotgun man's, except that it, too, was foreign to these hills. This isn't against you, per se. Then he raised his shovel, swung it hard against the side of Kevin's pack. He knocked it into the trench. A couple more swings took care of the coat and boots. Then Trevor and the other shovelmen began putting the dirt back into the hole. Shotgun man tossed a sack toward Kevin. It landed at his feet and rolled like a severed head. Clothes, shoes too. You put them on before you freeze. The sack had loop handles knotted together to secure the things inside. Kevin undid the knot, opened the sack to find a woolen sweater, flannel shirt, vintage jeans, rawhide belt, leather boots. The pants were wide and long. He cinched them tight at his waist and rolled the legs to his ankles. The boots were straight cut. No curves to differentiate right from left. The inner soles bore the imprints of another man's toes. The sack, too, Kevin. Over your head. Cover your face. (laughs) You're going to shoot me. Not unless I have to. So why do I need a mask to keep you from seeing Kevin put on the sack. Trevor came up behind him, pulled the loop handles, knotted them tight at the base of his head, and then took hold of his arm. Walk with us now, slow and steady. To be continued. So I thought I'd give you a mix tonight, and um, we just need one more thing. We're almost out of time. Just one more thing. We need to wrap everything up. This is the way these anthology shows work. We have the control voice and outer limits, and it takes control of your television at the beginning, and it relinquishes control at the end. And Rod Serling comes on with some ominous stuff at the beginning of Twilight Zone, and at the end he tells you it's okay. And, and oh. <laughs> And in Nightmare Cinema, the film that's released next month at the Fantasia Film Festival, we got Mickey Rourke, who plays the part of the Rod Serling guy. Uh, he's going to be um, uh, the, a projectionist who shows people these, these creepy, creepy films. But at the end, well, I won't give that away, but let's do this at the end of this performance tonight. Let's end with a question that will kind of put things in perspective, and that is, have they come? those hunters from another sphere. Is it possible they drew close and saw you lost in a reverie of story? Is it possible that they realized they had nothing to fear from fitful dreamers? Perhaps they have let you be. If that is the case, let us hope There are no real monsters waiting when my false and imagined horrors come to an end. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very nice. Um, okay, so Lawrence has some copies of his book. It's a collection, right? That's right. Yeah. And uh, you can buy it. I'm going to take about a 10, 15-minute break and have a drink. And uh, come on back, and we'll be having Mary Robin at Cole next. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Our second reader tonight <coughs> is Mary Robin at Cole, who is the author of historical fantasy novels, Ghost Talkers, and the Glamorous History Series, 
and the forthcoming Lady Astronaut Duology. She is also a three-time Hugo Award winner and a cast member of the podcast Writing Excuses. Her short fiction appears in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Tour.com and Asimov's. Mary, a professional puppeteer, lives in Chicago. Visit her online at maryrobnetcole.com. I wish she was doing some puppetry tonight, but she's not. But <clears throat> she has in the past. But please welcome Mary. Yeah, there, there will eventually be a puppet show that goes with this, but uh, not yet. Um, however, uh, I am going to read tonight from the Lady Astronaut Duology. I just today got the book. And I have an arc of the second book. So July 3rd, August 21st, and I'm going to give these away tonight. And the way I'm going to give it away at the end of this, so the people who are interested, it's very simple. I have a 20-sided dice that was on the International Space Station. I'm going to roll that sucker, and then uh, using fantastic numbers for the Fantastic Fiction series, I will give the book away appropriately. Um, the other thing that I have I will show you after I read, because I also have some additional swag. Um, so just know that there are more prizes. Uh, this is not memorized, sir. Um, that was an incredible reading that Lawrence did, uh, and um, asshole. That's what I have to say about that. So I'm going to read to you tonight from the first chapter of The Calculating Stars. And since this is the first chapter of a novel, if I have to tell you anything more than the title, I have done something terribly wrong. <laughs> chapter one. President Dewey congratulates NACA on satellite launch, March 3rd, 1952, Associated Press. The National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics successfully put its third satellite into orbit, this one with the capability of sending radio signals down to Earth and taking measurements of the radiation in space. The president denies that the satellite has any military purpose and says that its mission is one of scientific exploration. Do you remember where you were when the meteor hit? I've never understood why people phrase it like that, because of course you remember. I was in the mountains with Nathaniel. He had inherited this cabin from his father, and we used to go up there for stargazing, by which I mean sex. Oh, don't pretend you're shocked. Nathaniel and I were a healthy, young, married couple, and so most of the stars that I saw were painted across the inside of my eyelids. If I had known how long the stars were going to be hidden, I would have spent a lot more time outside with the telescope. We were lying in the bed with the covers in a tangled mess around us, the morning light filtered through silver snowfall and did nothing to warm the room. We'd been awake for hours, but hadn't gotten out of bed yet, for obvious reasons. Nathaniel had his leg thrown over me and was snuggled up against my side, tracing a finger along my collarbone in time with the music on our little battery-powered transistor radio. I stretched under his ministrations and patted his shoulder. Well, well, my very own 60-minute man. He snorted, his warm breath tickling my neck. Does that mean I get another 15 minutes of kissing? If you start a fire. I thought I already did. But he rolled up onto his elbow and got out of the bed. We were taking a much-needed break after a long push for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics launch. If I hadn't also been at NACA doing computations, I wouldn't have seen Nathaniel awake any time during the past two months. I pulled the covers up over myself and turned on my side to watch him. He was lean, and only his time in the Army during World War II kept him from being scrawny. I loved watching the muscles play under his skin as he pulled wood off the pile under the big picture window. The light framed him beautifully. It's silver, the snow framed him beautifully. It's silver light just catching in the strands of his blonde hair. And then the world outside lit up. If you were anywhere within 500 miles of Washington, D.C. at 9.53 a.m. on March 3rd, 1952 and facing a window, then you remember that light. Briefly red and then so violently white that it washed out even the shadows. Nathaniel straightened, the log still in his hands. Elma, cover your eyes. I did. 
that light. It must be an A-bomb. The Russians had been none too happy with us since President Dewey took office. God, the blast center must have been D.C. How long until it hit us? We'd both been at Trinity for the atom bomb tests, but all of the numbers had run out of my head. D.C. was far enough away that the heat wouldn't hit us, but it would kick off the war we had all been dreading. As I sat there with my eyes squeezed shut, the light faded. Nothing happened. The music continued to play. If the radio was playing, then it wasn't an electromagnetic pulse. I opened my eyes. Right. I hooked a finger at the radio. Clearly not an A-bomb. Nathaniel had spun away to get clear of the window, but he was still holding the log. He turned it over in his hands and glanced back outside. There hasn't been any sound yet. How long has it been? The radio continued to play, and it was still 60 Minute Man. What had that light been? I wasn't counting. A little over a minute? I shivered as I did the speed of sound calculations, and the seconds ticked by. 0.2 miles per second, so the center is at least 20 miles away. Nathaniel paused in the process of grabbing a sweater, and the seconds continued to tick by. 30 miles. 40. 50. That's, that's a big explosion to have been that bright. Taking a slow breath, I shook my head, more out of a desire for it not to be true than out of conviction. It wasn't an A-bomb. I'm open to other theories. He hauled his sweater on, and the wool turned his hair into a haystack of static. The music changed to some enchanted evening. I got out of bed and grabbed a bra and the trousers I'd taken off the day before. Outside, snow swirled past the window. Well, they haven't interrupted the broadcast, so it has to be something fairly benign, or at least localized. It could be one of the munitions plants. Maybe a meteor? Ah, now that idea actually had some merit, and it would explain why the broadcast hadn't been interrupted. It was a localized thing. I let out a breath in relief. And we could have been directly under the flight path. That would explain why there hasn't been an explosion if what we were seeing was just burning up. All light and fury signifying nothing. Nathaniel's fingers brushed mine, and he took the straw, the ends of the bra out of my hand. He hooked the strap, and then he ran his hands up my shoulder blades to rest on my upper arms. His hands were hot against my skin. I leaned back into his touch, but I couldn't quite stop thinking about that light. It had been so bright. He squeezed me a little before releasing me. Yes. Yes, it was a meteor? Yes, we should go back. I wanted to believe that it was just a fluke, but I had been able to see the light through my closed eyes. While we got dressed, the radio kept playing one cheerful tune after another. Maybe that was why I pulled on my hiking boots instead of loafers, because some part of my brain kept waiting for things to get worse. Neither of us commented on it, but every time a song ended, we looked at the radio, certain that this time someone would tell us what had happened. The floor of the cabin shuddered. At first, I thought a heavy truck was rolling by, but we were in the middle of nowhere. The porcelain robin that sat on the bedside table danced along its surface and fell. You would think, as a physicist, that I would recognize an earthquake faster. But we were in the Poconos, and they were geologically stable. Nathaniel didn't worry about that as much and grabbed my hand, pulling me into the doorway. The floor bucked and rolled under us. We clung to each other like in some sort of drunken foxtrot. The walls twisted and then then the whole place went down. I'm pretty sure I hollered. When the earth stopped moving, the radio was still playing. It buzzed as if the speaker were damaged, but somehow the the battery kept it going. Nathaniel and I were lying pressed together in the remnants of the doorway. Cold air swirled around us. I brushed the dust from his face. My hands were shaking. Okay? Terrified. His blue eyes were wide, but both pupils were the same size, so that was good. (laughs) You? I paused before answering with the social, fine, then took a breath and did an inventory of my body. I was filled with adrenaline, but I hadn't wet myself. (laughs) Wanted to, though. I'll be sore tomorrow. 
but I don't think there's any damage. I mean, to me, I mean. He nodded and craned his neck around, looking at the little cavity we were buried inside. Sunlight was visible through a gap where one of the plywood ceiling panels had fallen against the remnants of the doorframe. It took some doing, but we were able to push and pry the wreckage and crawl out of that space and clamber across the remains of the cabin. If I had been alone... Well, if I had been alone, I wouldn't have gotten through the doorframe in time. I wrapped my arms around myself and shivered despite my sweater. Nathaniel saw me shiver and squinted at the wreckage. Might be able to get a blanket out. Let's just go to the car. I turned, praying that nothing had fallen on it, partly because it was the only way to the airfield where our plane was, but also because the car was borrowed. Thank heavens it was sitting undamaged in the small parking area. There's no way I'll find my purse and all that, but I could hotwire it. Four minutes? He stumbled in the snow, between the flash and the quake. Something like that. I was running numbers and distances in my head, and I'm certain he was too. My pulse was beaten against all my joints, and I grabbed for the smooth certainty of mathematics. So, the explosion center is still in the 300-mile range? And the air blast will be, what, um, half an hour later, give or take? For all the calm in his words, Nathaniel's hand shook as he opened the passenger door for me. Which means we have another 15 minutes before it hits us. The air burned cold in my lungs. Fifteen minutes. All those years doing computations for rocket tests came into terrifying clarity. I could calculate the blast radius of a V-2 or the potential of rocket propellant, but this, this was not numbers on a page. And I didn't have enough information to make a solid calculation. All I knew for certain was that as long as the radio was playing, it wasn't an A-bomb. But whatever it exploded was huge. Let's try to get as far down the mountain as we can before the air blast hits. The light had come from the southeast. Thank God we were on the western side of the mountain. But southeast of us was D.C. and Philly and Baltimore and hundreds of thousands of people, including my family. I slid under the cold vinyl seat and leaned across it to pull out wires from under the steering column. It was easier to focus on something concrete, like hot wire in a car, than on what was happening. Outside the air, the, the, outside the car, the, the air hissed and crackled. Nathaniel leaned out the window. Shit. What? I pulled my head out from under the dashboard and looked up through the window, past the trees and the snow and into the sky. Flame and smoke left contrails in the air. A meteor would have done some damage, exploding over the Earth's surface. A meteorite, though? It had actually hit the Earth and ejected material through the hole it had torn in the atmosphere. Ejecta. We were seeing pieces of the planet raining back down on us as fire. My voice quavered, but I tried for a jaunty tone anyway. Well... At least you were wrong about it being a meteor. I got the car running, and Nathaniel pulled out and headed us down the mountain. There was no way we would make it to the plane before the air blast hit, but I had to hope that it would be protected enough in the barn. As for us, the more of the mountain we got between us and the air blast, the better. An explosion that bright from 300 miles away, the blast was not going to be gentle when it hit. I turned on the radio, half expecting it to be nothing but silence, but music came on immediately. I scrolled through the dial, looking for something, anything, that would tell us what was happening. It was just relentless music. As we drove, the car warmed up, but I couldn't stop shaking. Sliding across the seat, I snuggled up against Nathaniel. I I think I'm in shock. Will you be able to fly? Depends on how much ejecta there is when we get to the airfield. I had flown under fairly strenuous circumstances during the war, even though officially I had never flown combat. But that was only a technical specification to make the American public feel more secure about women in the military. Still, if I thought of ejecta as anti-aircraft fire, I at least had a frame of reference for what lay ahead of us. I just need to keep my body temperature from dropping anymore. 
He wrapped one arm around me and pulled the car over to the wrong side of the road and tucked it into the lee of a craggy overhang. Between it and the mountain, we'd be shielded from the worst of the air blast. This is probably the best shelter we can hope for. Until the blast hits. Good thinking. It was hard not to tense, waiting for the air blast. I rested my head against the scratchy wool of Nathaniel's jacket. Panicking would do neither of us any good, but we might well be wrong about what was happening. A song cut off abruptly. I don't remember what it was. I just remember the sudden silence. And then finally, the announcer. Why had it taken them nearly half an hour to report on what was happening? I had never heard Edward R. Murrow sound so shaken. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this program to bring you some grave news. Shortly before 10 this morning, what appears to have been a meteor entered the Earth's atmosphere. The meteor struck the ocean just off the coast of Maryland, causing a massive ball of fire, earthquakes, and other devastation. Coastal residents along the entire eastern seaboard are advised to evacuate inland because additional tidal waves are expected. All other citizens are asked to remain inside to allow emergency responders to work without interruption. Without interruption. He paused, and the static hiss of the radio seemed to reflect the collective nation holding our breath. We go now to our correspondent, Philip Williams, from our affiliate WCBO of Philadelphia, who is at the scene. Why would they have gone to a Philadelphia affiliate instead of someone at the scene in D.C. or Baltimore? At first, I thought the static had gotten worse, and then I realized that it was the sound of a massive fire. It took me a moment longer to understand. It had taken them this long to find a reporter who was still alive, and the closest one was in Philadelphia. I am standing on the U.S. one some 70 miles north of where the meteor struck. This is as close as we were able to get even by plane due to the tremendous heat. What lay under me as we flew was a scene of such devastation. It is as if a hand had scooped away the capital and taken with it all of the men and women who resided there. As of yet, the condition of the president is unknown, but... My heart clenched when his voice broke. I had listened to Williams report the Second World War without breaking stride. Later, when I saw where he was standing, I was amazed he'd been able to speak at all. But of Washington itself, nothing remains. So, uh, so that's a cheery book. Um, so, uh, two things that you will notice about this book. One is that it's the NACA, the National uh, Advisory um, Council on Aeronautics, which is the precursor to NASA. In this timeline, NASA never exists. What is developed instead, and this is slightly spoiler, but you can also kind of tell from the books, there's a lot of space stuff in them. Um, (laughs) So, you know, just don't read the back of the cover if you're at all concerned about what's going to happen. uh, but the, uh, what is developed is the International Aerospace Coalition. I have mission patches. <laughs> this is also what I affectionately call my punch card punk universe. I also have brought punch cards. So here's how it works. If you just want me to sign something, I will sign this, and I will write the uh, information on the back of how to get to the Lady Astronaut Club where you can apply for a membership card, uh, which we will actually send you an actual physical membership card in the physical mail to your physical house. I know it's so strange, but it is a thing that we are doing. If you want an IAC patch, just tell me that you've pre-ordered the book. I'll believe you. You don't have to show me. I'm not going to ask you to see the receipt. If you're like, I haven't, but, but I'm going to right now, just tell me that you have. I'll believe you. And if you haven't and are getting it from the library instead, that is also fair game. Just please read the book. Um, or don't and give it to someone else. That's also fine. 
any questions about how to get either of these two things? This one you just come up and ask me for. This one, give me some money. <laughs> um, you can also, if you don't want to do that, you can go to the uh, World Builders website and just buy these, uh, World Builders Marketplace. Now, I am going to roll a 20-sided die. Um, there are 26 letters in the alphabet, so I have done some fancy things on the page. Um, and what we're going to look for is uh, who, it, we're gonna, looking for the first letter of your name. First name. First letter of your first name. We're going to narrow this sucker down. We're going to be rolling multiple times. And yes, if you would like to hold, can you see this? Tiny? If you would like to hold the die that has been on the International Space Station, which was given to me by Chell Lindgren, who's an astronaut who was one of the consultants for the book. This has been in this has been in space. I never get tired of that. Um, if you'd like to hold it, totally fair game. I just won't stop watching you to make sure that you don't walk off with it. Okay, ready? Ten. So, uh, raise your hand if you want to copy the book and your first name starts with J. Okay, we've got one, two, two J's. That's it? Wow, really? I thought John would have, that would be more. Okay. So now, if your uh, second letter is an O. All right, sir, it's your book. You have both of them. Yes. Oh, wait. Actually, before I, yes, before I, because I, I forgot to, I forgot to read one thing. Can I borrow that book? Because, oh, yes, yes, and you can touch the dice. I just won't stop watching you because I want it back. One finger. There you go. May I borrow the book? Yes. I just, I just have to read the cover blurb to you for this book because I am so excited by it. <clears throat> Calculating stars, right? Lady astronaut book. An alternate history of space flight that reminds me of everything I loved about hidden figures. Katie Coleman, astronaut. <laughs> yes! Thank you very much. hang out. There's no reason to leave yet. <laughs> uh, have another drink and uh, come, come. She's got stuff. She's got swag. Come on and get it. And also buy Lawrence's book. And see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.